0: This is BrainSTEM with your host, neuroscientist, Dr. Hilary Marusak. Production by Amanpreet and Manmeet Vogel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode two on Tourette's Syndrome. I'm excited to interview Tourette's cop or Craig today. Craig is a police officer from Minnesota who's very active on social media to raise awareness and reduce stigma about Tourette syndrome. First, Craig, start out by telling us what a day in the life is like with Tourette syndrome.
1: For the most part, it's pretty much the same, uh, you know, as anybody else. I just <clears throat> make extra noises and, and move around a little extra. You know, I kind of I'm my own entertainment most days. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, <clears throat> in regards to. Uh, I, a typical day. Um, you know, a lot of my tics aren't uh, as severe as a lot of people. So, um, they, like, for instance, like, like when I'm cooking, um, a lot of my arm tics and, and things like that. Um, I get that pre-monetary urge, uh, which is, um, for people that don't, don't know. Um, but I can feel when a tick is coming in my arms. Um, so like you know, let's say like I'm, I'm cooking on a stove or, or something like that, or I'm, I'm holding something that would not look well on the floor. Um, I can, I, I know that urge is coming. So I'll either switch hands or put it down uh, real quick, get my tix out of the way and then continue on with, you know, what I'm cooking. And, you know, it's the same with, um, uh, it's the same with like, you know, drinking water, you know, like it's like glasses of things. Um, most of the time, most of the time, um, I can get the glass set down or I can switch hands, but every once in a while, I'm just, you know, really not paying attention to me. And, uh, um, you know, my, my glass of uh, whatever, you know, water or juice or something kind of, you know, ends up all over the floor, you know, whatever's in front of me. It just kind of, it is what it is. I laugh about it and then I go clean it up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So talk a little bit about the types of takes that you have, because you mentioned you've had um, sort of motor or movement-related tics, and also verbal tics. So, talk about the ones that you have, and you know if they change over time, and what is possible.
1: Um. So, yeah, I have a lot of a lot of motor tics. A lot of my tics are are, are facial tics. Uh, so I have a, the the heavy uh, rapid blinking, um, uh, a grimace. I guess you'd say I I also call it like the half duck face. Um, just because I kind of like like curl my just my upper lip, <laughs> um, and the one main noise you can hear is uh, is my sniffing tick. That's uh, <laughs> that's uh, my main my main vocal tick. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I have a shoulder shrugging tick. I have an arm stretching tick. I have a jaw clenching tick. <laughs> um, there's just so many. It's just like you just. <laughs> you just kind of forget like what your tics are just because they just, they become so much of your normal <laughs> that it, you know, I, I really don't pay attention to half of them anymore just cause I, I'm so used to them. There's, there's really no point. Um, but um, my, my tics do, <clears throat> I, I do get some new tics every once in a while. Um, not as often, um, you know, like from back in the day, <clears throat> but. Uh, a, a new one that I just kind of started in the beginning of the year <clears throat> is kind of like a low, kind of like a, a hum or a grumble from the back of my throat, <laughs> and I do that one a lot. Um, kind of like when, like, when I'm just like I'm like concentrating, or or just you know talking or something. It's just something that for some reason my ticks decided to fill that void of no noise and everything with a tick. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And the, the feeling that you get before a tick, I think that a lot of people will be wondering like what it feels like to have a tick. Can you describe that a little bit more?
1: Um, it's just, it, it's a weird feeling. You know, a lot of people kind of equate the, the the feeling to like a, you know, that feeling you get before you sneeze, you know, there's just a lot of like anxiety or pressure being built up in, in one area. you know, so for me, like, like my, my arm stretching tick, I can feel um, my elbow is just like, it just, it just, it's like, your mind is telling us like, you really need to stretch that elbow right now. You know, and it's, it's a very intense feeling that, oh, it's, it's, it's only going to get better if you do it, you know, and then, then you do it, that feeling is relieved, you know, and then depending on how frequent your ticks are, you know, a minute later, it's it's back to that intense feeling that it's like hey, you need to you need to stretch your arm or you know <laughs> you need to do one of your tics. So it's 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 fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Are there things you've noticed that have made the tics worse or better for you?
1: Um, so things that make my tics worse: uh, stress, anxiety, excessive caffeine, um, you know, being around a lot of people. You know, I just, uh, but I think that kind of comes in with the just anxiety. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Lack of sleep, uh, those are just kind of the ones that <clears throat> off the top of my head that I can think of. Um, things that make my tics better or just kind of calms my tics. <laughs> uh, anything that involves concentration. Uh, you know, like when I'm at home, <clears throat> um, singing, playing the guitar, that kind of you know suppresses or calms my tics for the time being. Um, or just, just like for me, just kind of just relaxing, like by myself, if I'm home by myself, just, <clears throat> just watching TV, um, I, I, I tend to notice I don't tick as often.
0: Mm-hmm. Are you able to actually suppress them if you were to try to do that?
1: <clears throat> yes and no. Um, I, I can, if I, <clears throat> if I actively try to suppress them, it does take a lot of concentration to do so. <clears throat> and like, especially for my <clears throat> my my vocal tick, my sniffing tick, you know, like my my body has gotten so used to that. It's now kind of incorporated with, you know, how I breathe, how I talk, you know, so you take away that, or you, you actively try to take away that one specific part of it. And it, it, I kind of forget how to breathe. <laughs> like, it, it's just so weird because like, you're, you're focusing so hard on not ticking, but then also at the same time, focusing so hard on breathing without ticking it's just it's it's a it's a really strange feeling it's 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 kind of painful you know because i've just done it before just for for fun you know just to see how long i could go
0: <laughs> like holding your breath but suppressing your tips
1: yeah that's pretty much what it is you know i just i get this tight sensation down into my chest that kind of starts getting a little painful. <laughs> Uh, you know, my neck starts tightening up. It's just, it's not a very comfortable, pleasant experience. So, uh, you know, I I tend to really not actively suppress my tics just because I don't really, I don't see a reason to or a need to.
0: Yeah. And that's really interesting when you talked about trying to deliberately control it, because it's almost like that is like the default setting of your body that it's just programmed to do that. And I always like to think about if you think really hard about just walking, like walking is so automatic for most people, your body knows kind of the the motor memory and the muscle memory to do that. But if you try to actively like slow down and like change the way you walk, like that is very hard to do. So that's kind of similar to how you're describing, like overriding the brain and the body.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Have you noticed Do your chicks change over the course of the day?
1: Um, you know, it, a lot of that is, 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 is really dependent on, on what happens, um, that day, you know, it depends on, you know, go to work if I'm off, if I have to, you know, be somewhere, be in a meeting, um, you know, kind of what my anxiety levels are at, where my stress levels are at, um, you know, and then also like, what happens at work, you know, there's, there, there's so many variables uh, that kind of dictate where my tics are going to be out through the day. I just, I just wake up every morning and, uh, just kind of go from there, you know, whatever my tics do, they do. And I just, uh, kind of roll with it.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. So let's talk about, let's kind of go back in time now and talk about your childhood because Tourette syndrome and tics in general begin pretty early in life. Right. Um, so when did you as a child or others around you start noticing the ticking?
1: So I I really don't know what age my my parents uh noticed my tics. Um so for me, uh my family tret syndrome is uh is is quite common uh in my family. Um mainly from my dad's side uh being that uh tret syndrome is a neurological disorder, it, it's genetic. Uh so uh, happily for me, it got passed down from my dad's side of the family. Uh, my dad has a tick disorder. <laughs> I've had uh, uncles and cousins that have, that have Trett syndrome. And, and, you know, some of them are on some, some pretty substantial uh, <clears throat> medication to control theirs. So I, I honestly don't know how young I was when my parents noticed it, but I I, I do remember when other people noticed it <laughs> to a point where it made me think what I was doing wasn't normal because it was my normal. You know, I, I didn't give any thoughts of it because that's how I always, you know, was that's how I always, you know, acted that those are my, my things. But I remember I was, I was probably eight or nine at the time. And we were in the school library and uh, one of my classmates had asked me, you know, like, why do you blink so much? And you know, it kind, of, it kind of at that point, it kind of hit me because I'm like, well, I didn't think I was blinking a lot. <laughs> you know, was, I'm blinking how I normally blink. <laughs> you know, so kind of, you know, at, at that age, it kind of made me think, or was starting to be a little <clears throat> self-conscious on <laughs> what my body does. But you know, and I can even remember just even just sitting there like. <laughs> you know, like watching other people blink and seeing how fast they're blinking and then trying to like imitate it (laughs) just so it didn't seem Mm -hmm. like I was, I was blinking more, but you know, obviously that doesn't work, (laughs) you know, and then, you know, and and then through high school and and, and grade school, um, (laughs) my ticks growing up, (laughs) um, weren't as severe as they are now. (laughs) Um, they were, they were I mean, barely noticeable at school for the most part. I mean, I think they were seen, but they weren't noticed uh, a lot of the times. (laughs) I was a very quiet, shy kid. Um, You know, I tried not to be noticed at all, (laughs) and uh, I I think just being that that quiet, (laughs) shy type, I I was able to suppress my tics a lot. Um, You know, even just uh, subconsciously, just suppress my tics, just because I didn't didn't want to be looked at didn't want to be seen didn't want to be noticed and you know then coming home you know that that was that was my safe space you know so i i was loud and you know could pick freely without, you know anybody staring at me but growing up um i was told i had tret syndrome but I didn't know what Tret syndrome was. It wasn't really explained to me, but also, you know, in the late eighties and the early nineties, <coughs> there wasn't a lot of knowledge or, or awareness or the internet, you know, back then, you know, so you really couldn't get, uh, you know, a, a better understanding of, of what Tret syndrome was, you know, and, <coughs> and seeing that, you know, it, it was, you know, something that my parents were aware of seeing that, you know, my, on my dad's side of the family, it didn't freak my parents out, you know, so they weren't, they were already aware of what it was because it was something that they kind of knew might happen to, to one of their kids, you know, so I never went and got diagnosed as a kid just because it never, you know, it didn't interfere with my schooling. It didn't interfere with my personal life. So they didn't see a need for me to go and 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 get diagnosed you know so um yeah i mean for the most part i i I lived a normal childhood i I, like i said i you know subconsciously and and unconsciously suppressed my tics at school but for the most part i didn't know what tristram was i thought everything that i was feeling and doing was normal i remember in, in high school i'd be sitting in class and uh, not even paying attention to what's happening uh, uh, up front with a teacher <laughs> because I'm doing everything in my power to suppress screaming, <laughs> and again, I thought that was normal. I thought every every kid had to deal with something like that, you know, and just and it was just because of my my lack of knowledge on <clears throat> on what threat syndrome them was <laughs> but again it didn't it didn't bother me. it didn't. <clears throat> you know it, it for the most part really had no effect on me because again this was, this was my normal and i thought it was normal never had anybody telling me otherwise
0: there's just a lot of misunderstanding right? about this and i think <laughs> have you run into people who think that you're kind of making it up because i've heard stories about people who are able to suppress their ticks at work and then they come home and they kind of have to let them out so you know you mentioned we haven't talked yet about your your day or your night job as a police officer <laughs> Um, as right. your your name um, suggests, but talk a little bit more about that and like what is it like to have Tourette's as a police officer? You mentioned it doesn't really have an impact, but is there anything you know has it affected your job in any way or just your day to day interactions?
1: Um. So uh, back to your first point, uh, if uh, people ever thought I was faking it or or anything uh, of of such, um. You know, when I, when, when my tics came back uh, those few years ago, I was already, you know, multiple years into my law enforcement career. So that was, that was one of my fears. You know, I've been working with, you know, these officers and these deputies for, for years now. And then, you know, all of a sudden I'm just like, oh, Hey, by the way, I'm going to be making noises and moving around extra, you know, know, completely out of the blue, (laughs) but you know and and um you know that was just my my anxiety my my overthinking uh is kind of you know what took over for that, you know, because when I did talk to everybody about it, uh you know they were nothing but supportive, you know, they had you know a ton of you know awesome questions and and you know none of them really you know scoffed at the idea that you know that I was faking it or I was just you know doing it for attention um because my biggest response would be. Why would anybody want to do this or have this just for because this is <coughs> this isn't fun to have it isn't something that you know that's enjoyable um you know I, i've come to accept it and i'm used to it by now but i mean the bad days are bad you know i, I wouldn't wish this on anybody but but um <coughs> I already forgot what your second point or your second question was. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I guess if it, uh, how did, Yeah, if it's interact or affected your job in any way or just your, how you interact with people.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, so no, it, it doesn't affect my job in in any way. And I'll, uh, for, for the point for that is um, a lot of people with Tourette's syndrome, <laughs> And myself included, is when you become—I uh, call it my hyper focus. When you become so focused on something, for some reason, my tics just become suppressed. They just—they just naturally just just go away. You know, I just think it's just because your your brain is so focused on <laughs> what's in front of you that it just kind of shifts everything to that, and and my tics go away. You know, and, and that's one of the the, the biggest questions. <clears throat> <laughs> that I've had to, or the the most frequent question that I've had to answer, you know, online and, and everything like that is you know, how can you be a cop of Tretson Room? You know, a lot of people's uh, fears or concerns is, you know, how am I able to, to hold a gun, how am I able to to you know, fire a, a weapon and all that stuff without, you know, everybody's like, well, you're gonna accidentally shoot somebody. <laughs> and and my response to that is, well, my 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 ticks don't interfere with that. <laughs> Um, so when I'm hunting, when I'm training, when I'm on the job, anytime a weapon is out, my ticks are pretty much gone because I'm focusing on so much on what's in front of me that my my body and my brain just doesn't think about ticks. It's thinking about everything that's in front of me, and it's the same on uh, when I go to um, you know calls for my job. You know, when i'm responding to you know a domestic or an assault or things like that again my ticks become suppressed because all my focus is on what's happening in front of me and then um, you know when the call is done or you know when i'm done with training or things like that my ticks come back you know so it's just kind of like a a a brief (laughs) rest period for my tics, but like it's something that I I don't even pay attention to because again, like all my focus is on what's happening in front of me and, and all the events that are unfolding. (laughs) I don't have time to think about my tics. My tics don't like, they're just not part of the equation when I'm, when I'm on my job, um, Mm you know, actively on a call.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's really interesting too with um, the fact that your tics go away when you're sort of hyper-focused Actually, reminds me a lot of Parkinson's disease, which is another sort of motor-related brain disorder. Obviously, totally different in terms of kind of the etiology and the patient, and you know how that looks. But people with um, Parkinson's, their kind of chief um, symptom is having this tremor. So their arms might tremor, and that actually happens at rest. So while they're not actually doing something, versus reaching for um, you know a glass or something, there's no tremor there. So it's just kind of interesting based on the way that the motor systems are wired in the brain that, you know, these symptoms right. seem to come yeah. out at certain times versus not <laughs> great. I want to transition now to talking about some of your advocacy work. And this is something I was really excited to talk to you about because you've been really active on social media to raise awareness and reduce stigma about Tourette's syndrome. So can you talk a little bit about what you've been up to in that arena?
1: Um, so <clears throat> I was uh I was approached by <clears throat> Officer Daniels Officer Daniels is another <clears throat> social media influencer <laughs> on all the platforms. Um he, he and I have been have been friends for uh a number of years. <laughs> and he approached me um probably November December of of uh 2018. <laughs> and he he's like you should start social media. <laughs> you know, he, you have something that's, for lack of a better phrase or a better term, it's unique. You know, a, a police officer with Trent Syndrome. I was like, yeah, I get that, but you know, I, I still see myself as more of a, you know, a shy, reserved person. So just the thought of putting myself out there for you know hundreds of people to see, thousands of people to see was. Was, was definitely scary. I mean, that, that it increased my anxiety. I was like, just even thinking about it, I was like, I don't know if I would, you know, be able to do something like that. But he told me just to think about it. And, and I did. And, you know, at the end I, I decided to, to go ahead with it. You know, I think that the, the pros far outweighed the cons of, of starting social media and, and, and advocating for the, Normalcy, uh of, of Tourette syndrome and just the awareness of it and then also humanizing the badge at the same time you know just to kind of show people that you know police officers are human too we have issues that we've overcome so uh, January of 2019 is when I started my social media career and um, it it uh, it took off way more than I expected I mean it just I mean, even to this day, I'm still, <clears throat> I'm still blown away at uh, at the amount of support and and, and, and positive uh, comments and messages that I get. You know, and, and and that's kind of the reason I still continue to do it is <coughs> to continue to to continue to show, uh, you know, kids and adults that. Uh, <laughs> having Tourette syndrome doesn't mean you're never going to amount to anything in, in life. you know having Tourette syndrome should never limit you on, on what you want to do or what you can do you know and, and you know I'm just having my page I'm just you know doing what I can with my own experiences to, to, to show people that who cares? Cares if you have Tourette syndrome, you know the the, the biggest hurdle to get over and <coughs> just accepting it and, and and just living life to the fullest is, is yourself, you know, because for the most part you're your biggest critic, you know. <coughs> most people don't care that you're making noises or that you're moving around extra. People may stare, people may make comments, but who cares? Those are complete strangers, you know. you you, you still you, you can't let those people stop you from literally living your life. And and that's the message I just want to keep, you know, you know pushing out there and, you know, just <coughs> showing, or, you know, just, uh, you know, just telling my experiences with, with Trent syndrome and, and the various comorbidities that I have because of it.
0: Awesome. So you hit on one of the misconceptions that you get a lot about, um, you know, the thought that it's dangerous to somehow have Tourette syndrome and be a a police officer. What are some other common misconceptions that you experience on social media, and how would you kind of address that?
1: Um, so on, on my page, I don't get a lot of um, other misconceptions. I mean, the, the 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 biggest one that I can think of, and that I've already you know addressed earlier, is how can you be a cop with Tourette's syndrome? You know, and a lot of times that comes from someone just watching one of my videos, you know, so they they literally see, you know, 30 seconds to a minute of, of my life and then equate what their knowledge of Tourette's syndrome is to how I act all the time. Well, I guess that that's a, that'd be another misconception is we don't tick constantly 24 seven. You know, that's, that's, that's a huge one. I mean, you know, where people say, you know, for, for faking, it's like, Oh, you were ticking a bunch in that video, but not this video. (laughs) <laughs> well, tret syndrome is like a roller coaster there's ups and downs and it can change from day to day hour to hour month to month you know it's just <clears throat> your body is the one that's going to decide how much you're going to tick you know you really don't have a choice in it you know uh, that that's that's a big one um, that i've seen on, on pages of, of people with that advocate for for syndrome and the other big one that I've that I've personally experienced in my in my personal life well actually I was at work is you know I I told the person I have Tourette syndrome you know so their their immediate response was oh so you swear all the time you know and you know and that's and that's 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 such a big one because that's what the media portrays as Tourette syndrome all the time because that's what's quote unquote the funniest part of tret syndrome or i should say it's what they think is is funny about tret syndrome <laughs> you know so the, the 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 biggest advocacy for that is there's such a small population of people with tret syndrome <laughs> that that swear and you know do the obscene gestures and, and things like that and, <laughs> Swearing tics—I I use air quotes—even though nobody can see it. Uh, the, the swearing tics is such a there's such a small population of, of people with Tret syndrome that have that. But you know, I, again, because the, the media portrays only that aspect of Tret syndrome, people automatically think that anybody that says they have Tret syndrome that they're going to be swearing. You know, so I mean, so that's a huge one. Um, that. You know that you uh, they try to advocate for to so let people know it's like no it's it's not just swearing there is so much more to Tourette's syndrome I mean, there's so much more that we don't even know about Tourette's syndrome <laughs> you know I mean it's just, it's such a unique disorder that affects everybody so differently you know it's hard to sit down and it's like yes this is this is Tourette's syndrome I mean you you can give a very broad definition of Tourette's syndrome. <laughs> but for each individual person, it's going to affect them so much differently.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I love that last part, because I think that's actually true about most brain disorders that even people in depression, um, within depression, you can have 5,000 different types of symptoms. So you could have the type of depression where you don't want to get out of bed versus the type of depression where you feel you know, excessively ruminating. So you feel more negative or more anxious than other people. So that part of it is really true. And I love how um, you really want to humanize Tourette syndrome um, and kind of show that it's, it's not some uniform um, disorder.
1: Right. Yeah. There's this, it's just, yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's the biggest thing, you know, and again, on, you know, other people's videos, you know, so you say like, well, this person has this kind of tics. Why don't you have that? Well, again, it's, it's because it affects everybody differently, you know, and, and to try to get that point across and, it in an eloquent enough manner where they're just like, oh, okay, I, I understand that, you know, and and that's the, that's the biggest hurdle to get over is, is, is trying to explain it (laughs) in terms where everybody would understand.
0: So you mentioned when you were a kid, um, even your parents had very little information about what ticks were, what Tourette syndrome was. So, um. How would you, how would you suggest that we kind of bridge that gap? Like, what do we need to do to provide more information besides (laughs) coming out with a podcast or, you know, kind of grassroots efforts where you're on social media and you're actually trying to do that? Like, how do you think we can better reach um, kids and parents and just the general public?
1: I honestly think these grassroots efforts are the best way to do it. (laughs) You know what? And just what I've seen in, you know, since I started um, my social media career, I guess you could say, as as Tretz Cop, I've noticed people really enjoy and they really latch on to personal stories. You know, they 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 like the the human aspect of Tretz syndrome. You know, anybody can go to the doctor, and the doctor's like, "Yep, you have Tretz syndrome." Big words, big words, big words, spew a bunch of other information. Kids are already not listening. Okay. But now, say you and I are having this conversation and we're talking, you know, in, in, in layman's terms, we're talking how we would normally have a, a conversation between two people and say that kid or that mom is listening. And they're just like, that's relatable. I understand that. You know, so right there, we're... We're, we're we're connecting with somebody on on a more personal level. It's this you know, sanitized doctor's office type feeling where you know you're already feeling overwhelmed to begin with while being there, you know, social media, podcasts, uh, you know, videos on YouTube. You're sitting in the comfort of your own home and you, I just feel like it's 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 a better way to to understand it and to you know hopefully accept it or, or be more accepting of it <laughs> but then also at the same time is you know you're, you're hoping those videos and those podcasts are giving you know accurate information <laughs> you know and you know and the biggest thing for me is again i'm, I'm sharing personal experience i'm sharing personal stories i'm in no way a doctor <laughs> i i don't even fully understand everything of tret syndrome i just talk about how trest syndrome affects me <laughs> You know, so I, I do have people that, that sick like, well, you know, like here's an issue that I'm having, or here's an issue my kid is having. And I'm, you know, I'm just like, I, I wish I could help you more, you know, but that's something that you know, a neurologist would answer or would be better apt to answer, at least to begin with. And then you can, you know, more research or, or you know, find things online that uh, you know be better suited for, you know, a, a child of whatever age. <laughs> um, you know, and then, and that, I mean, that's, that's my biggest push. I, I, I do honestly feel <laughs> that, that sharing personal experiences, personal stories is a, a great way to advocate and raise awareness for it because it brings that human element to the disorder.
0: I guess, last question we'll wrap up with um, what advice do you have for um, someone affected by Tourette's syndrome, or maybe a, have a kid um, with Tourette's or showing ticking? <laughs>
1: um, the 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 biggest thing is I know I, I've probably said it a hundred times in this video is you have to ignore the negative people and and the biggest thing is this uh, you know with, with ticks and everything is, is is accept you have to accept it and just don't let you know your tick disorder tret syndrome run your life or own you <laughs> just because you have it doesn't mean it defines you so um you know it's just there's uh, a support network is huge you know having having you know loving caring friends and family is is, <laughs> is a huge thing you know so for for the child or the adult that that's <clears> that's and is dealing you know the people with it like those people those those positive people because they're the ones that that matter the most you know those those complete strangers that you know make fun of you. Those people don't matter. You don't. They don't know you. Um, I think that's about all I can I can come up with is just ignore people. Ignore the mean people.
0: Yeah, and I think for all of its negatives, social media has provided a real opportunity to connect with other people around the world. Really who have brain disorders, including really rare brain disorders like Tourette's. Um, So I think like you said, finding that community and that social support and connecting with other people who are affected and brain disorders are more, um, most people have had a brain disorder um, or known a brain disorder at some point in their lifetime. So even if you're not affected, um, you know, there's support groups for people, you know, with family members affected. So I love what you're doing to really, Um, connect people on social media. And I think of your, you know, when you said you were a child, you were essentially silently suffering with this. And I think this is, you know, your platform and other platforms are really an opportunity to um, talk about it and to not let kids or other people with disorders, you know, silently suffer. They have a network to connect with. So I just want to tip my hat to what you're doing and just say, keep it up. And thank, um, you. thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I will give you the last word if there's anything, you know, you want to conclude with or a message for our listeners to leave with.
1: Um, I guess I just want to say, you know, there's, there's tons of information out there. I mean, we're at an age where you literally have the internet on your phone. Um, just what, uh, you know, Hayler and I both said, don't, don't, don't suffer alone. <laughs> There's plenty of resources. There's people you can reach out to. There's, there's forums, there's groups that you can join to, to not feel alone. And I understand that tret syndrome is, is, is common but rare at the same time. You know, so, you know, a lot of times like I'm the only person, you know, in this area, in my area that, that has Tourette syndrome, you know, so it, geographically you can feel very alone. I get that, but you know, reach out to people online, you know, establish a relationship with, with, with a group and, and, and to get that that accepting feeling. And then you can use, you know, those, those tools and resources to, to, to work on, you know, just being accepting and ignoring all those negative people, um, you know, at home or school and, and around town. Um, also I guess I should just uh, plug myself. Um, my handle on all social media is Tretscop. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and YouTube. And I really do appreciate you for having me on.
0: Thank you so much. The pleasure is all mine. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Craig. Okay, everyone, that wraps up the interview with Craig. We're going to move now to the interview with the expert in Tourette Syndrome. The person I'm talking to today is Dr. Deanna Green. Dr. Green is an assistant professor of cognitive science at UCSD. Her research focuses on understanding human cognitive and sensory motor systems, their interactions, and their development in typical and atypical populations. She uses a cognitive neuroscience approach and applies a variety of neuroimaging techniques, behavioral, and clinical measures to study typically developing children and adults as well as neuropsychiatric populations, particularly Tourette syndrome. Very excited to have you today, Dr. Green. We've heard from a firsthand account from someone with Tourette's syndrome. First, can you start by defining some terms for us like what is Tourette's syndrome, what are tics?
3: Sure. Um, First, thank you so much for having me. This seems like a really great podcast, so I'm glad to be a part of it. So yeah, so um, from a more clinical or research perspective, Tourette's syndrome is really defined as a neurodevelopmental disorder that's characterized primarily by motor and vocal tics. So you've heard Craig talk about this, but these tics are these abnormal or unwanted movements or vocalizations. Um, just some details about the diagnosis, it just requires that ticks must start before the age of 18, so it is developmental, and they must have lasted at least a year, and the ticks must not be due to something else, like a drug or substance.
0: Perfect, and a lot of times you see, unfortunately, the media sensationalized Tourette syndrome with vulgar and profanity. How prevalent is that in, in reality?
3: Yeah, this is a great question because this is most people's knowledge of Tourette's is from these media portrayals, which are not entirely accurate. So that um, symptom is called coprolalia, this sort of vulgar profanity shouting of words like that. And it's actually not very prevalent at all. So it turns out only around 10 percent of patients with Tourette's actually have that symptom.
0: So a very small minority, yet that gets yes. the majority of the media attention. Um, how prevalent in general are t- tick-related disorders, such as Tourette syndrome? What are
3: the different types? Yeah. So first, I'll address the different types because that actually leads into prevalence rates nicely. Um, so tick disorders in general are divided now into three major categories in the DSM five. So it's the recent sort of clinical standard. So the first is Tourette's disorder. And so this requires the presence of both motor and vocal tics. That's the key, both have to be present. Um, The other is persistent or chronic tic disorder. And this requires the presence of just motor tics or just vocal tics, but not both. So that's the main distinction between these um, tic disorders where the tics are chronic. Um, and so actually the term Tourette syndrome can often be used to describe both of these lumped together. I actually do that often just referring, just because Tourette's syndrome has this historical sort of um, place where people recognize that name. And so I use that typically to describe both Tourette's disorder and persistent or chronic tick disorder, but those are distinct in the clinical diagnosis. And then there's also what's called provisional tick disorder. And this is the case when ticks have not lasted one year. So it could actually be the case where it's before the one year mark, and at the one year mark, a child could be then diagnosed with one of the more chronic tick disorders, or it could actually capture those children who have ticks for a few months, but then they might go away. So this this actually leads nicely into prevalence. So in terms of prevalence, provisional tick disorder, so these ticks that haven't lasted a year can actually be quite common. Um, Reports on average are around 20 to 25% actually of school-aged children have ticks at some point. And the range is is very wide. So I've seen reports of 10% up to 50% of children exhibiting ticks at some point. Um, And so the general clinical lore is that a lot of kids will have ticks, but then within a few months or at least um, before that year, the ticks will get a lot better or go away and not be clinically significant anymore. So they tend to be common and sometimes transient. For Tourette's disorder and persistent tic disorder, it depends if you lump them together or not. So if you don't, if you just look at Tourette's disorder as it is defined where the patient must have both motor and vocal tics, then prevalence rates are around a half to 1% of the population you now include persistent tic disorder where they can have one or the other, but it's chronic, then you can get prevalence rates around 3%. So I, what I typically think of as having a chronic tic disorder, I would say it's around 3% of the population.
0: Perfect. And you raise a lot of good points um, that if you think back to your childhood, you probably noticed someone in your classroom who is squinting excessively or kind of sneezing or Showing you know, the tick related motor movements, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to have Tourette's disorder right. um, or that they're going to show ticks that last over time. That's a really, really important point. And it just um, is kind of comforting, I think, to people who maybe show ticks as children and that they're not, you know a very small portion have chronic um, ticks that last later in life. And I want to ask yes. you a little bit about the neurobiology between the two different types of, chronic tick disorders, but I think we'll uh, wait a little bit to get into that. So you talked about kids showing symptoms. When do symptoms typically begin? What are some early signs that people should be looking out for?
3: Yeah, so the average age of onset is typically around six or seven years old, although they can start anywhere between age three up to, you know, clinically age 18. Of course, in those teen years, it's much less common. But six to seven years old is the probably the average. Um, and then the most common early or first tick is, are some of the most common ticks in general, like eye blinking. So this could be repetitive blinks or exaggerated blinks, but it's quite common. And so that is often one of the first symptoms that come online. But uh, parents tend to describe onset differently, so sometimes they gradually notice these ticks appear over time in their children. Sometimes they might feel like there's a sudden onset and they take their child to the ER. So it can actually vary quite a bit in that respect. Um, But most commonly, they start with these more what are called simple ticks, like eye blinking or nose scrunching, things where children sometimes actually end up in the allergist's office because they think that their child has allergies, things like that.
0: That's so interesting. And then I'm assuming in some cases when it develops into a chronic tic disorder, it becomes a little bit more complicated. Can you talk a a little bit about the different like complex tics? Like what is the
3: most complicated tic that's possible? Oh, (laughs) yeah. So ticks are divided into simple and complex ticks, which there are some definitions that can distinguish them, but sometimes it can be a little hard. Um, But the simple ticks involve one muscle group usually, and they are things like eye blinking or nose scrunching that you see commonly. Um, And then it is true as with development, ticks tend to get more complex in nature. And so that can be maybe a series of those simple ticks combined together or it could be something that looks purposeful, like touching someone. Um, If you read, Oliver Sacks has actually a great chapter, A Surgeon's Life, (laughs) um, about this surgeon with Tourette's and one of his tics was to touch his fellow colleagues, his fellow doctors on the shoulder, which which seems like this very purposeful act, but it's actually a complex tic. So complex ticks can be these things that look purposeful in nature, but aren't, you know, they're not, it's not the same. Um, And so, yeah, I'm trying to think what the most complex ticks (laughs) someone can have. I mean, the world record just, yeah, the, the variability is so wide. It can involve a series of those sorts of things, a series of, I must Touch this person here, then touch the floor, then scrunch my face. You know, it can be this combination that tends to happen in this um, the sort of the same fashion every time. Yeah. Very interesting, and I,
0: I think that's actually a theme across a lot of the brain disorders uh, we're discussing. Is that there's everyone looks different. So if someone with Tourette's yeah. doesn't look like someone else with with Tourette's. There's so much variability. Um, I love the point about Oliver Sacks too. And I highly recommend his books. He does a great job of describing the brain and different brain disorders in a really personal um, manner, which is awesome. Um, One quick question that came to mind is if you're a kid and you're ticking, do you often notice that you are ticking or is it often someone else who notices it first?
3: It depends on the child. At really young ages, it's, they often seem like they aren't noticing it, but sometimes that can just be a factor of the child not being able to articulate it really that well. Um, but people will say that oftentimes at younger ages, children don't necessarily notice it so much. However, with age, most commonly people do know. Um there are some cases in older ages, even adults, where simple tics may may go unnoticed by the person who is doing them. But um, generally, the generally older children will know that they are doing them. Right. What are some risk
0: factors of having tic related disorders? Is there a genetic component? And I bring this up because Craig mentioned that his dad had a tic related disorder, so wanted to ask about genetic factors potentially?
3: Yeah, so there's definitely a genetic component to it. Um, There's not necessarily one gene. Um, It's much more complicated, like with many disorders, but there is a genetic component. It does run in families, and it also seems to run in families with some of its commonly comorbid disorders, like ADHD and OCD. So a parent with OCD may be not only more likely to have a child with OCD, but also with tics.
0: You read my mind on another (laughs) question. What are some related disorders? Are there any sex differences? Are boys more susceptible than girls or vice versa?
3: Yes. So it is more prevalent in boys than girls. The ratio tends to be around four to one. So that's somewhat similar to autism and a little bit more... Um, than ADHD. But yeah, some of these disorders tend to be more prevalent in boys than girls. Why? We don't really know, actually. Um, And then you asked about associated disorders. So yeah, it's actually really highly comorbid with ADHD and OCD. So around half of children with Tourette's also have ADHD. So that's a lot. And about a third also have OCD.
0: Yeah. Also makes your job very complicated as a researcher trying to study this and disentangling all these yes. interrelated disorders. Another theme in biological psychiatry research is <laughs> a lot of comorbidities. Um, yes, so let's exactly. actually let's actually talk about your research now. You do really sure. exciting research. Um can you tell us a little bit first about kind of your background and your training and how you got into studying this this area? Sure.
3: First, it is raining here. I don't know if that is coming through in the audio, but it just started pouring. Oh, no, I'm not hearing it, okay? it, but it's all good. Okay. Yeah, it's right. fine. I just wanted to make sure.
0: <laughs> no problem. And we can edit it out, so
3: okay. we're all good. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so I was, I was actually trained as a cognitive neuroscientist, which just means studying cognitive processes in the human brain. Um, so I went to grad school at UCLA, and so during that PhD training, I was I was really starting off studying attention in the brain, but started getting really interested in development in particular and developmental disorders. So I started some collaborations um, with projects looking at children with autism, and then I really fell in love with the power of these neuroimaging tools like MRI and specifically functional MRI to tap into developmental brain disorders and really wanted to pursue that direction. Um, with Tourette specifically, I actually grew up with ticks myself. So I have this intrinsic interest and I also feel like it gives me a little intrinsic insight into the experiences and what might be questions worth pursuing. So that really got me it it kind of solidified (laughs) that with my experience in grad school really solidified that this was the direction I wanted to go. Um, And then also looking into the literature more, you know, I I discovered Tourette's is is actually just really fascinating for so many reasons. So it's much less studied and less well understood by the general population than some other disorders like autism. Um, Yet it affects so many people. And it's it's also interesting because it affects many different brain processes. So it's not only about the tics, right, which you would think of as involving motor processes. Also, sensory issues and cognitive um, aspects that come into play. Also, social systems come into play. So it really taps into many different brain systems and their interactions, and it's really complex. So I wanted to dive in when I got my Ph.D., I really strive to look for who are some world experts on Tourette's and who do sophisticated neuroimaging techniques. So that's what landed me at Washington University in St. Louis. And that's really where I kickstarted my independent research in this area. So I was there for about 10 years doing this research. And then recently, just this summer, I moved my lab to UC San Diego where, you know, we're trying to get research started given that- The weather current, is warmer too. Well, yes.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. And I think that, you know, the advent or the discovery of some neuroimaging techniques where we can actually peer into the living brain um, in someone who's alive in a kid, um, yes. that really brings new insight into some of these older questions potentially. So that's that's really cool. Um, Let's get into some of the neurobiology. So you mentioned how it affects a bunch of different processes in the brain. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what happens in the brain when you're taking what
3: happens in the brain um, in Tourette syndrome? Yeah, so it's, of course, like everything, also probably because of the heterogeneity, that variability across individuals, it's really complicated. So in its, in describing its, in the most simple form, it's commonly described as involving frontostroidal circuits in the brain. So that just means these circuits are connections between regions in the frontal lobes and then subcortical structures like the basal ganglia. Um, And there is actually nice evidence for the involvement of these circuits in imaging, but also in postmortem studies and animal studies. So there is um, evidence for that, that there is a strong component there. But there's also evidence that it can be more complicated and involve many different systems in the brain. And so that's where some of my research has, that's where I've been focused on looking at these different systems in the brain and how they might interact. And really the picture is complicated. It's not um, It's not simple. We We want to simplify our results when we find them and say, oh, it's this specific region or these specific connections, but it's not always um, as simple as doing that. Sometimes it's a, and what we've been looking at, kind of a whole brain pattern. So looking at connections amongst and within these different networks of the brain all together. And it's really this pattern of the whole thing that might distinguish someone with Tourette's and that pattern might vary individual to individual. So it ends up being complicated. It's a vast, um, (laughs) very open (laughs) area of study. But you will commonly hear people talk about these frontostriatal circuits. Um, And that is based on it being a movement disorder. We know these circuits are involved in other movement disorders like Parkinson's disease. So it's it's a reasonable place to start. And there is great evidence for it, but it probably also involves more.
0: Right. And that, that again, is such a big theme in psychiatric disorders and yeah. brain disorders more generally is that, you know, we want to isolate like the amygdala as the emotion center of the brain, like in my area of work, which is childhood anxiety. And in your case, the striatum is more movement related, but... In reality everything is everything is connected to each other and that there's something that and the whole brain is affected so i think that's a really important point can you dive a little bit more into like what exactly the striatum does in terms of movement just so they kind of have an understanding and maybe what um is thought to happen in the context of a tick
3: yeah so the striatum has it's it has these very clear connections with um cortex, so the cerebral cortex, and certain regions of the the cortex. So different parts of the stratum have different connections with the cortex in these frontostradal or these corticostradal loops, and there's multiple of these loops, Um, and so they can involve, there's a motor loop that involves more motor nuclei of the subcortex and in motor regions of the cortex, but there's also Cognitive loops that involve more cognitive nuclei or more cognitive areas of the cortex. Um, and so in these loops, there's <laughs> there's a lot of inhibitory and excitatory sort of connections going on in this sort of complicated way, where it's thought that there, I guess in a simplified way, there's this sort of go circuit where you are. Um, allowed to move. And then there's these inhibit circuits that then inhibit movements when you don't want to. So one theory that's actually proposed for Tourette's, a nice model um, as kind of a basic framework, involves sort of this disinhibition of certain stridal regions, certain areas in the basal ganglia might be disinhibited, meaning there's too much um, activity there. And too much that, go. Yes, too much go, not as much stop as as one would normally have. And therefore that leads to these. T- it's a framework. Um, It's nice to build upon, but it is one way of describing how this might come online. That's perfect. I think that really helps paint a picture. And
0: I guess one example is like if you reach out with your hand and you want to pick up a glass, like your brain is saying, I want to pick up this glass with my arm so that that motor movement you're saying is um, controlled by these cortical striatal loops that are kind of providing feedback. And in the case of Tourette's, if you have like a motor tick, that stop, that saying don't reach out and pick up something is just, it's not there. So you're just getting go, reach, reach, reach. Um,
3: am I getting that right? Yes, that's, that's the idea. Um, it is unclear if that is exactly how it is happening. But it's a model that is proposed.
0: Got it. Yeah. And a good place to start, as you said.
3: Yes, exactly.
0: This makes me think of something that Craig brought up in his interview, that when he's called onto the job and or when he's focusing, like, laser focus on something, if it's work or if it's something like singing, um, he actually doesn't have any tics. Is there anything to that? Is
3: there any plausible reason in the brain for that? So, yeah, it's it's interesting. Um This is a classic description of Tourette's. This is, it it could be one of the criteria. Um, It is described all the time. So ticks can be very context dependent and this can vary across people, but there are some really common themes like what Craig mentioned. So being really focused in something can put someone in a state where their ticks are reduced where conversely, other situations like a stressful situation can put someone in a state where their tics are amplified. So this is very, very common, but it's actually a really open area of research. We don't know the underlying neurobiology of why this is the case. And that's actually, this is exactly one reason why some of these models of striatal activity um, aren't perfect, because they don't necessarily capture that aspect. Of the disorder, so that's that's one of the uh, interesting things that we need to discover.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Definitely have a job for a long time. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's so interesting, and I think that just goes to show that there's a lot more work that needs to be done, and the brain is a lot more complicated than people tend to think. Um, <laughs> are there things yes. that make ticking better or worse in general for patients?
3: Yes. Yes. So. It really, it, like I said, they can be very context-dependent. So, um, it, and it, it does vary per person. But a lot of times with children, they do a lot of suppression and trying to hold back their tics during school because of the social aspects of it. They don't want to be made fun of. They don't want to disrupt the class. That then they hold them back all day. Not completely, right? They let them go at some points, maybe when people aren't looking or they try to mask them. But then oftentimes they describe this phenomena where children get home and kind of let loose. And so they tick a lot more, which can be stressful for parents where that's what they see. And they see their children with these really constant frequent ticks when at school they are holding them back some. But it is true, there are some things that seem to, or situations that seem to make ticks better or worse. There's also this very striking waxing and waning course over time where severity can just really fluctuate a lot over the course of weeks or months or years even. So... It is actually often the case during the summer, t- ticks tend to get better when children are home and not at school. And in September rolls around, they're starting school and ticks are often worse at that time. So there's common things like that.
0: That's so interesting. And I think the point about kids coming home from school and kind of their ticks are no longer suppressed is really interesting. And I've heard from some people that, you know, they will try to suppress their ticks at work and then they'll come home and they'll, share them on social media for example and people think that they're faking it and they're like no i'm just suppressing them at work as best as i can
3: yes (laughs) it happens all the time and people learn over time so that's another thing that's really interesting to look at is how this develops with age um people will learn by the time then they're adults people think oh their tics are so much better but the individual themselves may say, no, they're not. I just know how to control them in certain situations, or it's easier for me to control them at work than it is at home. Things like that.
0: Right. And that kind of leads into my next question, which is what are the current treatment options and limitations to treatment? You know, when would someone need to seek a medication? Whether what other types of treatments are available? Yeah, so this is
3: actually a really hard question faced by physicians and patients, too, whether to use treatment or not, particularly medications. So it tends to be a conversation that needs to be had and really thought about because it depends on many factors. How much are the ticks bothering everyday life? Are they just bugging the parent and the child is fine? Um, Or are they really impacting the child's schoolwork and social relationships? So it really depends on that. Now, if medication is the way to go, there's a lot of options. Um, Antipsychotics actually used to be one of the top options, but given some of the unpleasant side effects, uh, clinicians nowadays try to use other options um, as a first line. And there are many. (laughs) Um, One that's actually really interesting is some drugs that are primarily used as blood pressure medication, so this includes things like clonidine and guampicine. Um, and they've actually been shown to be pretty effective in some cases with not as severe side effects. So they tend to be a nice first try, but oftentimes people might have to cycle through several different medications to find something that works. And, that, and they do wanna note that there's no drug or treatment that will completely eliminate tics. They may just make them a little better or easier to control. Um, but there's also behavioral therapies that some randomized controlled trials have shown are just as effective as medications themselves, which is nice. Um, a main one that comes to mind is called comprehensive behavioral intervention for ticks or CBIT. It's very, it's specific for tics. It involves multiple components and that can be a really great option. The problem with that is limited availability and people who are trained to administer it and in proximity to those clinicians who can use it. And then of course, whether insurance covers it and things like that. That's the problem there. But if you can, and you have, available access to CBIT, that can actually be a really nice treatment option.
0: Perfect. And the point about that clinicians have been trying other drugs like antipsychotics, and just to dive into that for a moment, psychosis is part of something like schizophrenia. So this is pretty common that, you know, physicians apply these drugs that were kind of made for a different disorder onto something like Tourette's or a different brain disorder because we don't have that fundamental understanding of the brain that you mentioned. So, some of these treatments are just kind of discovered by chance, like one of their patients was given this and it seemed to, you know, just by chance help with tics. Um, This is common again across psychiatry that they're, you know, kind of reusing these drugs and seeing what works, but it again highlights that we need to know so much more about the brain and actually what is causing this to develop um, accurate treatments. So that's, I think that's a really important point. Um, and (laughs) I want to bring in brain development now, because that's something that you and I both share in common as kind of a research area. And it's, um, a really important area to talk about because as you said, Tourette's begins very early in life. These ticks start very early in my line of research. Anxiety starts very early in life. So if we can look at what's happening in, in the developing brain, we can identify, you know, ways to prevent this from developing in the first place and actually many psychiatric disorders, if not most of them actually begin very early. So I think we're in the right area, but this also makes your work a lot more complicated because you've got kind of a moving target on top of all the other complexities. So can you talk a little bit about some of your work in brain development and how does that kind of change the picture there?
3: Yeah, you're right. It does make it really complicated. Um, So The problem is we don't have the kind of data that we need, which are longitudinal studies, which is following the same people over time to see how this given person, how their brain changes over time. What we have more of are these cross-sectional studies where you sample a group of children, let's say with Tourette's and a group of adults with Tourette's and you look at maybe differences there and assume that that involves some change over time. Um, But in that case, you know, attribution of causality can be really hard. So if you find some difference in the brain, does that actually, for example, in an adult, does that actually cause the disorder or is this due to having lived with tics their whole life? Or maybe even compensatory mechanisms that they've developed to control their tics as they've grown up. Maybe that's what we're tapping into. So that's why we really need these longitudinal studies um, to see, okay, what changes in the brain over time? Can we capture children at the earliest stage and then follow them through development? And these are ongoing lines of research actually. So that does lead into some of my research. (laughs) Um, So I'm involved in a couple of longitudinal studies. So one that we have some colleagues that, that um, I worked with at WashU started maybe 10 years ago actually is looking at children when they first start ticking. So trying, it's actually really hard to capture these children in time and recruitment can be challenging, but trying to find these children within the first six months of when ticks started. So this takes, you know, really reaching out to parents and teachers and other people in the community to see if we can capture these children and then bring them in, do an assessment to see if ticks truly did start within the past six months because sometimes they started a lot earlier and they were just missed or they weren't as bad yet. But we have been able to get in some of these children when they first start ticking. And then the idea is that we, collect a bunch of data on them at that point. So we do brain imaging. This includes structural MRI, functional MRI. Um, And then we also uh, collect cognitive measures. So measures of different cognitive processes, other behavioral measures, um, and then full clinical assessment on them. And then what we do is we track them over time So for some of these children, right, they're in that provisional tick disorder category. Ticks haven't lasted a year yet. So what we wanna do is at a year, assess whether the ticks have subsided or if they are continuing. And so do they have this, do they qualify for a diagnosis of a chronic tick disorder or not? And then continue following them and see if there are maybe things that we measured. So for example, something in the brain that we measured at this earliest time point that might predict who's going to get better and who's not. So that's one line. Then I also I have another ongoing longitudinal study um, that I am leading and it's between WashU and UCSD now where we're capturing children around the ages when ticks tend to be their worst which is around 10 to 12 years old and we're doing the exact same thing, just at this different stage of the disorder. So we're collecting brain imaging, plus cognitive measures, plus a full clinical assessment, and following these children for several years to, and tracking their symptoms along the way. And then after several years, we actually bring them back and do everything again. So now can we look at changes in the brain over that time, do those changes track with clinical symptoms or cognitive measures? And can we predict from one of the earlier time points who's going to get better and who's going to get worse? So we want to identify what we're calling predictive biomarkers. So things that might make these predictions. Um, So these longitudinal designs are really powerful for being able to answer these questions. And there's not many of these studies out there. Um, The study looking at tick onset, that's been going on for some time. We have some preliminary data showing um, some things like structure of the hippocampus might be a candidate predictor of um, how children do later on. Our samples still not as large as I would like? just because it's been hard to collect data to recruit these kids. Um, But that is a promising uh, result that we are finding. And then the other study that is capturing this later time point is kind of just starting. So we collected a handful of children at the time point one, and then COVID hit, so we've been shut down. (laughs) So we're, (laughs) we're waiting Till we can resume. But we are tracking those children that we have brought in so far, we are still tracking their symptoms over time. Um, So we can look at predictors there. But this is something that in the coming years, we will be able to answer. So those longitudinal studies are really exciting, I think.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And we'll have to have you back in a couple years when you've yeah. got more exciting results to to report. Mm-hmm. I think the hippocampus point is really interesting. And I think most people listening will associate the hippocampus with memory, so they might be thinking what the heck does that have to do with Tourette or with tic? <laughs> um I know it's a really preliminary result, but do you have yeah. any thoughts about why that might be? Yeah, so one possibility,
3: so one thing that Tourette's has been um, thought to be involved in is habiting. So sometimes you can think of tics as an overlearned habit. Um that maybe under normal circumstances, you wouldn't overlearn, it wouldn't be there, but if there's sort of faulty circuitry involving habit learning, then they might resemble a habit. And so this is where the hippocampus comes into play in terms of its role in this sort of memory and habit learning, also the striatum too. But there is some evidence showing that motor learning in particular might um, be altered in children with Tourette's. And so this may link up there. That's one speculation. (laughs) Right. And as scientists, we put on our
0: speculation hat and (laughs) do the best we can. Very exciting stuff. And I think it highlights, again, how little we know just about brain development in general, the fact that there are very few studies even in healthy kids. Well, there's the big one, right now is the ABCD study by the NIH where they're actually tracking brain development in a very large sample of kids. But um, even in Tourette, there's very little, you know, looking at how the brain is developing. And during this age, I'm so glad you're capturing kind of this early age and adolescence because there's so many changes in the brain that happen. And it makes sense if you have a kid and you look at your seven-year-old and they're totally different than like a 13-year-old. So just what's happening kind of under the hood is so interesting. And this is a really cool way to actually get at some of these questions that we still don't understand. I'm just very excited to hear about what you find eventually. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) If you can actually do it.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I know. Hopefully in the next year we can get going again. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, you mentioned the ABCD study and that study is also really powerful. They do, they are having an assessment of ticks in there. It's very minimal because they're collecting so much. So it's more, you know, does your child have ticks or not? But children who have been diagnosed with Trets because they're being very inclusive in their recruitment, um, you know, those parents will know, yes, my child has ticks. And so we can actually look at that data set. And that's, you know, that's a data set of 12,000 children. So, it's really the best we have for looking at development in this way. So that's very nice. Um, UCSD and WashU are sites for that study.
0: That's awesome. So I guess we'll conclude with some resources. So what would you recommend to someone with Tourette syndrome for parents
3: whose kids may be showing ticks? Yeah, my first recommendation would be to look at the Tourette Association of America website. Um, They have some great resources. There are some local chapters too. So depending on your area where you live, there will be some local chapter of the Tourette Association. And they vary in terms of how active they are at any given time but you should be able to find out some great contacts there. And a lot of them have separate websites. You can link to their website and find great more local resources there. And then um, also one of my colleagues at WashU just has a really nice website (laughs) that I think is really great resource for parents who are noticing ticks in their children and they don't know where to start. And there's a lot of frequently asked questions addressed there. So I um, I sent you the link so we can get that posted. I think that's a great resource too.
0: Perfect. Yes, we will put all of that information in the, the bio for this podcast episode. Thank you for that. That's great. Last question for students who love the brain, who are interested in science or neuroscience and want to grow up to be a neuroscientist like yourself one day. What advice would you give them? Yeah, so I'm sure
3: people give different answers for this, and you hear a lot of the same things again and again. So um, when I think about this question, I want to answer with something a little different that maybe you don't hear. So my advice would be to actually try to acquire a breadth of knowledge, even just within the neuroscience field itself. So with neuroscience, there's many different levels of study. So you can start with cellular or molecular neuroscience so really looking down in there at that level all the way up to whole brain systems or looking at human behavior and and everywhere in between looking at circuits looking at maps so my advice is to really have some basis of knowledge across every level of study because if you have this foundation of knowledge across all these levels you will that will inform whatever level you are focusing on, much better. So for example, I'm at this, I study this higher level, more brain systems level, but if I didn't have fundamental knowledge of neurons and how they communicate and how they're organized in the brain, I might not be able to take the data that I'm getting at this MRI level where you can't look at the cellular level, right? You're looking at, a chunk of the brain at a time if I didn't have that knowledge of the cellular level then I might end up making some claims that don't actually make sense with how the brain is really organized so I really recommend that people have this basis of knowledge that you can draw from for whatever level you choose to focus on and it just makes for better science overall
0: Couldn't agree more. And that's an excellent way to end. I thank you so much for your time. And the time just flew right by. So we will definitely have to have you back on in a couple of years when you've got some exciting, more exciting results to to share. Thank you so much. Thank you. That wraps up another episode of Brainstem. Please subscribe to the podcast, share it with friends and family, and follow us on social media at Brainstem Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.